0: Hello, please let me see your ticket stubs to the double-edged double bill. This week, Robert Pattinson gives us maps to the lighthouse. week adam thomas and thomas mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature then both will have to pick a number between one and ten or to seal their fate for the next episode when we'll have two good movies the other two bad ones let the chaos begin and i am adam thomas and i don't really have anything witty today
1: and i am thomas mariani and you liked me podcast didn't you no oh i mean that makes sense i figure you wouldn't yeah I mean, you're on it. That that's the biggest problem. That's that. Well, that's
0: right. That's exactly why I hate it. <laughs> uh,
1: but we're not the only ones here, Adam. Uh, we have a guest with us today. Someone who hasn't been on the show, unfortunately, in quite a bit. He has been a friend of ours for quite some time, and uh, he seems to be a, a team Edward, as it were. Given he is on the show, it is Mr. Jonathan Habs McHale. Jonathan, welcome back.
2: Thanks for having me back. Sorry, it's been over a year, but hey. Uh, It's the first time I'm here on Talk Film Society. I'm a big fan of sequels.
1: (laughs) That's true, yes. Everyone, uh, this is Jonathan. He's been a buddy of mine for for quite a bit, and uh, we love having him on the show. And, uh, Jonathan, we invited you back on, and you decided to specifically pick uh, the topic du jour for today in honor of the Batman coming out, uh, finally. We're not doing anything DC-related, but we were talking about uh, the star uh, who is playing the titular Batman, Mr. Robert Pattinson and uh, why did you want to come on for this one in particular
2: Uh, I've been on many episodes in the past but I never did an actor specific one and from the current generation of up-and-coming actors Robert Pattinson has this energy about him that you could see especially in his indie work from the last four or five years that is just weird but fascinating and I feel like that type of energy is definitely useful for playing Batman, which I feel as if if people have not watched some of his earlier work post Twilight and just know him only for Twilight, don't really get what he's going for. And I'm looking forward to him being this crazy Bruce Wayne nut job.
1: I mean, it's wild that people still are on that train It's just like, oh, but Twilight, like when he was even announced as Batman and everyone was still like, on the, oh man, fuck Twilight thing. It's just like, guys, have you not? been at all paying attention in the last like 10 fucking years or so where he's just been totally like abandoning that and just going for such crazy wild projects i agree i think he's had such a fascinating like actual actor's career where he's just like oh well i'll try a bit this i'll try a bit that even like small role big role it doesn't really matter for him as long as like the actual acting is an interesting exercise for him and i mean adam i i believe you would ah. agree with those sentiments
0: oh yeah definitely man i i think he's one of the uh most exciting sort of, I hate to call him, it, he's not really like a big name mainstream as of yet. I think Batman is going to push him back into that echelon, uh, cetera. You know, he was that during Twilight. And then, like we said, he kind of went off and did all these little weird indie movies and just kind of really explored his himself and talents as an actor. And then I think Batman's going to push him back into that spotlight again. And, and it's exciting because he's done just great work. You know, post-Twilight. It's some
1: even during Twilight. But I just love also Pattinson just as, like, a persona. Like, whoever he is portraying whenever he does interviews is so insane to me. just some, like, really weird, like, stringy, drugged-out British dude who's just like, oh, yeah, I don't give a shit. Like, when they had to interrupt Batman for, like, COVID. And he's just like, nah, I'm not keeping it in shape. I don't give a fuck. And he's, like, in a hotel room, like, eating macaroni and cheese or whatever the fuck. I just love that weird persona. That's like just coming out of him even with stuff like that. And, obviously, like, I was, you know, younger when Twilight came out, and I kind of had a similar, like, oh, my God, he's just, like, a weird shovel face dude or whatever. But going back to those movies, it's so interesting, especially, like, with the first one, how much he's actually taking that role seriously, but noticeably how much he does not want to be there by, like, the last few movies, admittingly. He's very clearly just like, I, I, I want to get out of here <laughs> and just do weird shit. But at the same time, it's still, like, fun for being, like, the weird version of this character that like stephanie meyer wrote and then they the screen tried to portray and work around the source material
2: apparently in a recent gq interview he apparently was doing things so weird in twilight that he was like pushed the side by his agent saying like if you don't turn it around you'll be fired so i think it may be that he just was doing his crazy weirdness already then he just was not contained because he was like 21 when he first did twilight and that's not even his like first movie that people might be aware of because he was Cedric Diggory and Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire he was trying to be a maverick and I feel as if that's something that we don't really talk about especially in mainstream movies about actors unless they do something insane with their method acting like harassing people and such I feel like there should be more of that instead of just oh this one guy was actually out in the cold for a week we should just give him an oscar not name anyone in particular.
1: I don't know. I mean, I I think the biggest problem with Pattinson's career is that he hasn't mailed anybody dead rats and used condoms. Like you know, a, a great master. Thespian. Give them time. <laughs> Give <laughs> them time. Who knows? Yes. Um. But I I mean also what I like is the fact that like both him and Kristen Stewart, who we've talked about previously for an episode, just took that massive Twilight paycheck they got, particularly with like the last two movies. I think they got somewhere around like twenty million dollars for both like each movie. And they were just like, well, you know that I'm going to fuck around and do whatever. And you know, and Taylor Lautner uh, is just like being him and not acting. And I'm fine with that. <laughs> he just, he knew that that was not his place
2: anymore. Oh, no, he knew that after his uh, post-Twilight movies failed miserably. Like, who remembers abducted?
1: I do. Uh, excuse, excuse me, it's abduction, sir. You're not a real abduct head like us. You're right.
2: Literally. Okay, he didn't come back for that Shark Boy Lava Girl pseudo-sequel. He's that a guy with a mask. Just say he was Shark boy. <laughs>
1: right. <laughs> that, that's true. That amazed me that he didn't even do that. But, yeah, I mean, I just, I love the fact that Pattinson and Stewart are just really embracing. Just like, yeah, we're doing whatever the fuck we want. We're really doing interesting things with our careers. And, you know, I, I hope that uh, bears fruit even after he's Batman. I hope Batman just gives him more carte blanche to be like, okay, now I'm going to do some other weird shit with some other interesting director or script that I find or whatever. I think he's got, he's got that kind of moxie to him that I really respect.
2: Yeah, I would rather see people start talking about Oscar nominations, even though he's been doing Oscar level work for years and people just overlooked him because he's just been doing the wrong movies, apparently, or it's just he needs more attention away from people who still think of him as the sparkly vampire.
1: Yes, but uh, we're talking about two specific movies that are more in that camp of the weird ones he's done. Uh, where basically, if you're new, every week Adam and I, at the end of an episode, pick a randomly selected double feature. One of us has two good movies, one of us has two bad movies. Pick number between one and ten. That gets us our good and our bad feature for the double feature. And uh, at the end of our last episode, uh, Adam had the bad picks, because we switched off on that quality. And uh, he ended up with Maps to the Stars for our bad pick, Uh, and then our good pick, which was my choice, is The Lighthouse. Uh, But first, we'll do that bad pick of Maps to the Stars. I thought that it was a meet. I didn't know that I was gonna have to read. And then the casting director, who I know,
2: doesn't even acknowledge me. She just walks right by without saying a word. And then she says they wanna put me on tape, and I'm like, excuse me, but you need special makeup for that, or you look green. And she says, well, you can either tape
1: or not. Like, it's all some pointless exercise, and I just can't take it anymore, Jacob. I'm so and it's so pathetic.
2: Where'd you come in from? Jupiter. Now you had tinsel time, what are you gonna do? This isn't a very glamorous job. I would be the most loyal, most competent, most
1: grateful personal assistant you've ever had. I hired a girl. It's amazing.
2: Why is it amazing?
1: She was burned in a fire. You gonna hurt me, Agatha?
2: I think she may be back. I don't know if she's dangerous. I think you're a little crazy.
1: So uh, Maps of the Stars came out May 21st, 2014 in like festivals and stuff. Um, and was directed by David Cronenberg, who we've talked about previously. We've had an episode about him and stuff like that. But uh, this is interesting because it's his most recent feature. For a while it seemed like it might be his last feature, but he's going to have the, the new one with Kristen Stewart. Speaking of which, uh, kind of the Crimes of the Future, which is fascinating. But uh, this is his sort of Hollywood satire movie that's uh, very bleak, uh, has a huge cast, and Pattinson plays more of a supporting role, uh, where he just pops in pretty much on occasion on that. But Adam, I'm very curious, because you had not seen this before. Uh, What did you think of Maps to the Stars?
0: I have no idea. (laughs) I I really... (laughs) I, I watched it days ago and I, I sat with it and, and I, I still, it's either fucking brilliant or it's the most pretentious thing I've ever seen in my life. And I, I, I'm inclined to believe it falls somewhere in between. Um, it, it's, it's, it's dark, man. It's dark and harrowing. I mean, I have it on, you know, uh, my Voodoo streaming service and they have it down as a comedy. This is not a comedy. There's some really great performances in it. Sick, twisted shit. But I, I feel like it's sort of just messily cobbled together and yet at the same time, kind of predictable too. It, it's just, it's, I don't know. I, I, I really don't know how I feel about this one. It, it's, let's put it this way. It, it didn't make me feel like dirty or gross or anything after watching it, which I think might've been the intention with a lot of it. It ultimately left me sort
1: of confused and bummed out. Always want to hear bummed out, baby. Uh, but I'm curious uh, from Jonathan, uh, what'd you think of Maps to the Stars?
2: This is actually the first time I saw this movie and I'm kind of in the realm as, as uh, Adam. It feels like every other scene is fighting its previous scene in the tone that it's trying to convey. Because you have weird instances of his child actor who's recovering from... Uh, drug abuse and he's having visions of dead children and then the next scene is Julianne Moore talking about how she wants to play her mom in an old movie that is also being haunted by the ghost or the after image of her mother who has been who molested her as a kid which may also be contradictory a lot of these characters have very confused emotions and they do sometimes act like as a comedy like uh, Mia Wachowska who we haven't even even mentioned like she she seems like she's the stalker character but then it goes off on expanding on what happened to her and her relation with the people that she's following and it's actually probably the most endearing part of this movie and like you have Jillian Moore who I already mentioned she seems to be in her most out there performance I've ever seen and and I think it's weirder because I think her ghost mom's name is Clarice. So it's, I'm just giggling thinking about, uh, uh, about Hannibal, which is not even a, is a worse movie easily. But it's still it's bizarre because it also dabbles in somewhat discussions of incest. So it's it's a weird movie. Um, well, I had seen this before. I'd seen it
1: actually around the time we did our Cronenberg episode, and I rewatched it here. And both times I came out of it with the same thing, which is I actually dig this movie. I think it does an interesting job of, like, you mentioned some of the confusing elements of, like, what exactly is, like, the connecting thread between scene to scene. I think the biggest thing is just that, like, in this version of L.A., which is, like, attempting to be a bit more grounded than, like, your usual Hollywood satire, I guess, like, the whole point really is just this, like oh, they all treat this kind of, like, ghostly hauntedness as just a part of, like, the profession. It's really one of the most scathing sort of looks at what, like, being in the business of show kind of is, which is to say, just like, oh, yeah, you know, you see, like, the haunted ghosts of your past, whether it be, like, your own mother or, like, this girl that you didn't have any kind of appreciation for who was on her deathbed and you were an asshole like the self-absorbed actor who didn't give a shit and uh, you just got to deal with that shit all the time because it's in order to continue this sort of rise to fame that you want you have to just completely ignore any kind of empathy you would have for other characters or ignore any kind of trauma you've had in the past it's just you got to keep on progressing forward and i just love the fact that especially considering what we talked about with pattinson being so much more of like the weirder kind of character actor thing i love his performance in this because he's like the only sane person basically <laughs> Who just looks at all this is just like, y'all are fucking weird. (laughs) It's just like Pattinson could have being the audience surrogate in that way I find fascinating. But I like all the other characters too. I think there's a an interesting complexity to all of them that I I find engrossing that is under that whole umbrella once again of just like, uh it's it's really actually soul crushing to be a part of this industry in a way that other Hollywood satirists have tried to do, but I think this one does a great job of capturing at least like the emptiness. That you feel in sort of being a part of the business.
2: No, oh, I can see that. I do agree that Pattinson's probably the most normal. I guess it's just that his arc is very subtle. He's he's just around observing these people, or actively having fun with them. It's better performance from a David Cronenberg movie, bar none. I'm just. I think what really bugged me is everything else around him outside of the main characters that we mentioned, like I, you, you bring up those, uh, the emptiness and I feel as if the emptiness of Hollywood is really exemplified with John Cusack as a self-help a chiropractic psychologist, media personality. It's, it feels like it's the perfect role for John Cusack, especially with his behavior in, in the 2020s. Are you, are you
1: implying that John Cusack has become a bit more empty as a person, allegedly?
2: Yes. Allegedly.
1: <laughs> I mean, honestly, yeah, I, that's the thing. Like, watching this again, I was just like, oh, yeah, there's no acting required for Cusack whatsoever in this part. Like, I think this and also Love and Mercy, which came out around the same time, are, like, the last really good performances for him because they both feel kind of like, oh, these are both men who have had their souls completely sucked out of them. One of them through abuse with like love and mercy in this one just with like, Oh, he's completely sold his soul it has absolutely no kind of humanity left in him.
2: It's scenes with him that make me actually have sympathy for the women in this movie. Cause he is, yeah, he's just played out abusive, like not just physically beating me but everything with the way he's uh, gaslighting Olivia Williams in the scenes, especially with the reveal of their actual relationship before marriage. And it's, it's disgusting. And I I recall hearing people actually name calling a certain Harvey in the film and it just made me realize, oh, they're talking about Weinstein.
1: I mean, there's a lot of casual things like Harvey is. Harvey is literally a line Julianne Moore has. Um, And it's it's interesting even just the way they casually mention celebrities. It's kind of like the player but in just a much more, like, acidic way, where just anytime they mention these people, it's just sort of in the way of, like, oh, no, they're just a part of our natural makeup. We talk about them in the same way we talk about, like, our, you know, family members or, obviously, in the parlance of it being a job, just like, oh, yeah, there's, like, natural supervisors or whatever the fuck. It's just like, yeah, they're, they're totally just a part of our daily lives. And I think that's interesting. But, Adam, you haven't talked in a bit. Do you have any kind of, um, maybe, elaborations on your confusion from earlier,
0: maybe? Well, I don't know that, like I said, I'm not, like, confused. It's not like the plot's not easy to follow. Like, I understand what's going on. I just, I I guess I'm more confused by the tone of the whole thing. Like, what were they going for? What was the point here? Like, it just feels like a movie that was trying to be sort of shocking for shocking sake. I don't watch this movie and get, like, a a message out of it. I, I really don't. Everyone knows, even before this movie, there's been movies about it and post this movie it was about the dark side of Hollywood and how fucked up it is and how it just chews people up and spits them out and everything. And yeah, it's a lot to do with the plot of this movie, but I just feel like throwing in sort of the, you know, spoiler alert if you haven't seen it, but the incestual stuff and the sexual sort of degradation and all that. Like I understand that it's something that definitely does happen, uh, especially to you know, actresses in in Hollywood and stuff. And and I get it. It's just, like I said, it feels like more of an attempt to be shocking on that type of level instead of a story level. It just, you know, the more we talk about it, the more I even think about it, it just doesn't sit well with me.
1: Well, I think even like the incestuous element, what I think is interesting about it is it, it fits into the fact that this movie has a pretty small cast of main characters. It's just like, we see the same, like maybe 10 people throughout this whole movie. And even then, like, we mainly focus on, like, a group of basically six or so. And I think that's inherent to, like, what the movie's trying to talk about in terms of, like, what Hollywood kind of does to people in terms of, like, it isolates you. It totally puts you in such a, like, corner where you're just like, well, who do I have to even relate to or be around except for, like, basically my family at this point? It's basically saying that just, oh, Hollywood culture drives people so away from any kind of reality that the only people that are around them are their own, like, family that they've made for themselves and have thus warped into a whole new fucked up version of what it is. And I think that's part for the course, not just for, like, what this satire's doing, but even for Cronenberg in terms of, like, what he usually does with sexuality. In this case, I think it's a bit more sterile, but in a way that I find, once again, kind of fascinating, because with any of these, like, other Hollywood satires, they're a bit more, like, over the top of the glitz and the glamour and all this other big, major Hollywood stuff. Even, like, the degradation is treated as just like, oh, it's this big, massive event. Here, it's just, like, casual. I think that makes it more unsettling in a way that I think is very intentional and interesting, as opposed to just for shocking sake. I think there's a lot more intent to it
0: i'm not saying he, he, you're inaccurate I, i'm sure that maybe that was the intention i just I, for some reason it just didn't land let's put it this way though this is not a movie to where i'm like i've seen it once i'm good like i this movie kind of deserves another viewing i think especially you know maybe I, even on someone like me who's a cronenberg fan Patton said fan of julian Moore fan f- fuck john cusack but i would you know i <laughs> I wouldn't mind like re-watching this again. It's just, it's also the type of movie that I don't know that I'll ever be in the, in the proper headspace to do it. Like I just, like I said, it just feels so muddy to me and, and poorly cobbled together. I just, and I think Jonathan said it, said it really well earlier. It feels like every scene is trying to like maybe outdo or have a bigger moment than the scene before it it all just sort of feels like just a bunch of scenes it doesn't really feel like a a connected cohesive
2: piece to me i think what what works more often than not in the movie is that it's still connected by the themes like like bringing up the incest like it really is kind of incestuous as benji the john cusack's son the child actor has the vision of this of the kid that he met at the hospital, but also of a kid who was a uh, was a child of a colleague or a rival of uh, Julianne Moore for uh, the role in the movie. The thing is, Benji never met the kid at all, and the kid just appears in his own uh, in his own visions. And the real connection that there is is just that both actors have the same agent. And it kind of feels like that's what they're going for with trying to be incestuous in a way that does not feel sexual at the because because yeah, Thomas said it perfectly. It feels sterile that they have these connections. Kind of, they just say like, Oh yes, we are siblings and we must get married and these kind of things. Like it's, there's nothing about any sort of intimate touching or, or any or even emotional intimacy besides whenever people read the poem, which, we first hear from uh, Julianne Moore's young mom, which Sarah Gaydon is working her ass off as that ghost. She's actually the funniest thing in this movie to me. I
1: think she is definitely one of the better interesting things, especially that concept, given Julianne Moore's like this aging actress who is already in the shadow of her mother. But also the fact that her mother died at such a young, pristine age. And every time she's visiting her saying just like, oh, you're old and washed up and you're terrible, but I will be preserved like this forever. It's this weird thing that she's almost encased in another thing, like the fire metaphors that keep going, like Mia Wasikowska's, like, visible scars and all this other stuff. Really, she was just like, oh, yeah, the only real sort of escape is just either, like, death or to find, like, some sort of connection in the most sterile way. Like you mentioned, like, whenever this incestuous theme is brought up, it's brought up as just, like, the natural conclusion to them because they have nothing else. We're just like, yeah, sure, we're the only people who know each other's awful pain and shittiness, so we might as well just fuck each other. It's this weird, once again, it's this, like, desperation that comes out of just, like, a lack of any other option. That it, I find it, like, it's, I agree that with Adam, like, I don't, like, I wouldn't have chosen necessarily to watch this again, even though I like this movie, because it's a rough sit. Like, maybe a, many a Cronenberg movie <laughs> can be, like, a rough sit. But I think it still was like, doing a lot more interesting things where you say, like, oh, every scene feels like it's completely disparate from the other. I think that thematic connection really helps, but also it feels that like it's just kind of observing these characters' lives as they kind of, like, cross between each other and how it's not sort of, like, plot-heavy. But it's very heavy on just the fact that, like, oh, when, say, Mia Wasikowska comes back into their lives, it just brings up all these horrible scars they want to completely ignore. Like, when John Cusack sees her, it's just like, I just want you to stay the fuck out of my life. It's not any kind of concern about where she's been or what she's done. He just sees her just like, oh, you are a reminder of all my failings as a person. Get the fuck out of my life. And I think that it's cold. It's brutal. It's not, like I said, it's not a fun watch but I find that it like, really is interesting. It's just sort of a character examination on all these characters, about how when they meet back up with each other, when they come into their, each other's lives, it's just this disparate thing of like, oh wow, you're just reminding me of all my feelings as a person. And you're reminding me of like my past or my troubles or anything else. Stay away from me. I'm not going to confront my bullshit. Fuck you for trying to make me do that.
2: Man, that scene with John Cusack. Literally, he he's so self-centered. He never says it's I want you to leave for the sake of my family or for our son. It's just, you're ruining things for me. You're ruining my book tour. You're, you're ruining everything I built up because of the damage you've done. It's really horrible. And it fits perfectly for John Cusack. And that's why I give that whole sympathy to, you know, Wachowska for the entire film because of that. She is a schizophrenic, like mental health is something that is just brushed aside as well in Hollywood. And even though she was never in the Hollywood business, she's still connected to an actor family, and it still shows that. Like even this man who does try to help celebrities going through their own past trauma, he won't even help his own family because he doesn't get money out of it. He doesn't get happiness out of it because he just he just sees that whole situation with the fire in the past, and that's it.
0: Yeah, he's a scumbag, dude. I mean, I, yeah, totally. It, it's it's all about him, even to the point to where. Once, uh, you know, Benji almost kills the kid and all that stuff and he's driving in the car, he's like, oh, we'll just contain as much as we can and we'll just do a book deal and go on a tour and Oprah ourself, or Dr. Phil ourselves or whatever and bounce right back. It, it's just he doesn't give a shit what happen to his kids. And the thing is about the the daughter character, he knew where she was the whole time. They knew she was in that fucking. You know, the mental facility where she was and everything. And they she was writing them letters and they knew all they just didn't keep the letters. They didn't give a fuck. Because it just wouldn't suit their modern lifestyle or you know, their their famous lifestyle. I don't know, man. I'm just not on it with this movie. (laughs) I just I like it. I like a lot of it. I like the this is probably my favorite performance of hers. Uh Mia, I can't I don't even attempt to pronounce her. Was a cowscot. It's probably probably my favorite she's ever been, to be honest, because I'm usually not too plus on her I think she has a tendency to be a little wooden but she's really good in this um Pattinson's great in his little role Julianne Moore goes fucking full bore in this movie but it's just like I said it's just there's to me it's like I said it just becomes such there's such a pretentious level to it for me I mean I don't understand why I'm sure that's not the intent um but it's just something about it just I don't know I don't know I'm having a hard time like even thinking of you know, other than some of the performances, a moment that happens in this movie that I'm like, well, oh, see, I really liked that. I really enjoyed that. And I, I don't know that there is one.
1: Well, I will say, I think I, I also really like with you mentioned Julianne Moore. I think she is like the stellar standout of this movie, I think, because she is so clearly coming from like a real place of being, like, a woman in Hollywood, especially one that's, like, over 40. Like, I love how many of the scenes are her just trying to keep up so she can stay somewhat relevant, even being, like, horribly monstrous with stuff like, there's this woman who is her friend who is cast in the part of, like, playing her mother's role from the original movie in a remake, and then that woman's son dies in a pool... And she's just like, oh my god, I can't believe it, initially. And then within seconds, her when her agent is just like, well, you know, they might be recasting with you, she instantly forgets that empathy. She's just like, well, are, are you sure this is, like, an actual offer? It's a deal that I can really do? And she goes outside and, like, sings and dances with Mia Wasikowska. Like, the actual patriarchal Hollywood system has completely fucked her over as a person. To the point where it's just, like, she can't even have empathy for too long before immediately she has to diverge back into, like, oh, but how is this going to affect me and my career and my relevance and all this other stuff? Because that's all she can really cling to in her life at this point. And then the moment she actually starts to find any kind of success and go back into, like, oh, potentially starring in this role, she is an awful person, especially to Mia Wasikowska during, like, the big climactic... Uh, conflict that goes on. And Wasikowski even has that, where she has these delusions, but like, oh, I'm like Twitter friends with Carrie Fisher and all sorts of stuff. I think this is one of the better movies to also talk about like that parasocial relationship element of it. where are like, oh, we have this kind of connection to celebrities. We think we have via like online stuff or seeing them on the silver screen. But really those are all these like delusional fantasies because we want to kind of escape in her case. Like the poem they keep quoting is called a Liberté" by Paul, I apologize for mispronouncing that probably. And looking up especially about that poem, it's fascinating because it's basically a list of things just like, oh, I, I write your name in my notebook and all this other stuff that is kind of about like apparently the poem author's like obsession with a girl that he met. During, like, the French occupation, but really became more about a desire for, like, oh, I want to, like, expand beyond my own world. I want to keep going forward and out of this. And all these characters want that. They want, like, freedom to some extent. Like, liberty means freedom in French. They want to get the fuck out of there. They want to, like, not be stuck in the secluded area. But the trouble is the world has crafted this around them this, like, weird, upsetting existence that they just can't really get out of it whatsoever. I think it kind of fits even with, like, you know, Cronenberg's classic horror themes of just, like, oh, we can't, like, really get out of the systems that are created by, you know, wh- where how we live and, like, the, the world that we're living in. There's not that much of a difference between, like, the themes in this and, like, a Videodrome, honestly, or even, like, The Fly, in terms of just being kind of, like, trapped in this thing, that's partially your own making, but also just like this drive for like attempted success and fear of death and all this other stuff. I think it does a, a really good job of. He's always done a good job, I think, of exploring those kind of themes. They really fascinate him, and I think it, it works pretty well here for me.
2: You know, I, I really do agree with that, Thomas, because uh, the the constant uh, recitation of liberté is uh, first from the old movie with Julianne Moore's mother, then from Mia Wachowska. And also uh, uh, Benji when he reads it on his own, and I believe also Julianne Moore recites it at one point. It really shows these the systems in different levels because you have in the movie the idea of the of the psychiatric ward trying to control a young woman who may or may not even have a, a mental illness, and they never confirm it because we don't actually see the movie within the movie. And then you have uh, the entire thing with uh, the family trying to control. Uh, as well as like we said the entire hollywood system first pigeonholing julianne moore into the aging actress but they still even if they have these positional issues uh, which technically also goes into generational uh systems even if there are different realms of uh family uh business and such it's still their actions show not the best options which they could have done like, especially uh, having a house being burned down, someone burning themselves, someone just fucking someone's boyfriend. Like, it's all these things that they they try to act out, and it doesn't seem it, They're not positives to help them out of their situation, but you can't blame most of them. John Cusack, I, I keep repeating, if uh, uh, fuck him, he's the one who actually did so much that he he is a perpetrator and he could have avoided half of the things that happened to him in this movie
0: i mean i i i actually do agree with everything you both just said um i I think all that stuff is there especially you know like even compared like to cronenberg's other works and stuff like that i mean it's as simple as even like in some of his other movies escaping even like you know The flesh and the body, and and just wanting to be free of all constraints. Like, yeah, that's that is there. It is here. I found myself bored a lot, and this is a weird movie to get bored at because there's a lot of shit going on in this movie. It's just, I don't know. And it was pretty easily for me, like I said, pretty easily telegraphed. Like, I knew for well, obviously, I don't think, but again, I don't think it's meant to be a big secret. But I knew that, you know the mia's character was the sister like and i again i don't think that's supposed to be like a big sort of reveal but it's just like even that like i just i got it like kind of right away before they even tried to really sell it and it's just i don't know
1: i, I don't think it's really a movie that gives that much of a shit about it being quote-unquote predictable i think that's like such a secondary concern compared to like all the other elements that like it's going with like the thematics and the character-related stuff. Like, in terms of a predictable plot, I think that's so secondary to what the movie's actually doing.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, maybe. Maybe you're right. I don't know. I don't don't
1: know. Well, I know Adam wants to keep talking about this movie so badly, clearly. (laughs) He's so interested in continuing to talk (laughs) about this movie. But we do have another movie that we we all three of us want to talk about extensively. So we'll go in and go into final thoughts then. Um, Adam, if you have anything else to squeeze out (laughs) <laughs> that map's no
0: not, not really it was just ultimately a, a miss for me i mean that's basically what i'll leave it as like like i said it's not one that i wouldn't mind revisiting but no time soon
1: jonathan please
2: as a first time viewer i was confused on the execution but having a conversation with friends over it can really help and i feel like this is a movie that does deserve discussions Is is kind of an overlooked Cronenberg movie. And as we kind of discussed, Robert Pattinson is off to the side because there's a lot of stuff to talk about with the remaining cast. So I would say it's still decent enough for, if you have not watched it, check it out. It's on Amazon Prime. If you have it, go for it.
1: Uh, Yeah, I mean, the, the way I kind of describe this movie is it really evokes the feeling I had when I visited LA like 10 years ago. And I first stepped on the Hollywood Boulevard and I had that sort of dreamy idea of like, oh, it's like the Walk of Fame and the Grandma's Chinese Theater. And also there's it's going to be such a big, fun, adventurous place. And that place is a fucking shithole. <laughs> it's such a disgusting awful place like there's a scene in here where she kisses the Hollywood Walk of Fame star and I like nearly vomited it's so like not a place you want to put anything (laughs) on your body near it's such a hideous like awful dirty place and I think this movie really knows that but I think it also conveys that in a weirdly like clinical kind of clean way in the way that like you know Cronenberg at this point in his career is like so much less interested in like the gore and the violence there's a bit of that here near the end with that bludgeoning that happens with uh, Julianne Moore's character. But there's, there's so much more of an interest in just the fact that like the awful sort of abuse of people and of systems and just complete lack of empathy for one another is just a part of the daily life. Not even a struggle. Like it's actually a struggle, but all these characters just say it is like, Nope. It's just like, you know, I take out the trash and then I cry about all the horrible trauma in my life. Same shit, different day kind of deal and i think it's it's not great i would not say it's like top echelon cronenberg but i would say honestly it's one of the my the ones i prefer in his sort of like recent catalog like 21st century era cronenberg i'd say of that era of course also like eastern promises is one it's like my favorite of those but there's still i think a lot of this is one of the better ones in the last like decade or so of his career that i've found a lot more fascinating, a lot more interesting, and one that I think deserves a bit more attention. Though, I also get, it, like, this is not really a movie to, like for, for everybody, <laughs> quite frankly. It's not a movie that, that can really engross people in the way that, like, some of Kernberg's other movies are. It's a very alienating movie, and I 100% get it. Uh, but at the same time, I find it curious, and I find it to be at least one of the better recent satires of Hollywood that feels a bit more truthful than some of those other ones do. which is just kind of like a wink and a nod, like, oh, get it? We're in the middle of, like, uh, Hollywood, but we're, like, making fun of ourselves, so we're, it's a, we're a bit in on the joke, so that makes it all fine and good. And Cronenberg, being a bit more of an outsider, given he mostly shoots in Canada, and this was the first movie he's ever shot in the U.S. at all, for, like, Beverly Hills scenes and shit like that, um, he's a bit more outside and can say like, oh, no, this is just a fucking terrible place. And I can observe it from my clinical, weird, pervasive point of view. In a fascinating way to me. But... Let's talk about uh, our good feature and one that I think we all are more mutually excited and agreeable on the lighthouse.
0: Tell me, what's a timberman want with
1: being a wiki? Starting new? On the run.
0: Secrets are you? No,
1: sir. Why just fill your beans? Why just spill your beans? Why just you spill, you spill your beans? How long have we been on this rock? Five weeks. Two days. Help me to recollect. So The Lighthouse came out October 18th, 2019, from uh, director and co-writer Robert Eggers, who he wrote this with his brother Max Eggers. And we have not talked about uh, Mr. Eggers that much, unfortunately, because uh, with this and his previous film, The Witch, uh, that dude is one of the more interesting filmmakers, especially in the like, A24 sphere of just weird horror-esque things. No, Adam, you were before this a big fan of The Witch.
0: Oh, fuck yeah. The Witch is my shit. It's my jam.
1: So how did you feel about The Lighthouse, especially going into it and you know how you feel about it, especially watching it again and all this other stuff?
0: Well, I want to put it to you exactly like this. Uh, I don't know uh, a lot that happens in this movie. I don't understand a lot of it. But unlike the other movie, I'm totally on board for it because it is fucking bizarre and just visually just kind of incredible. I just, I love this movie. It's like a fucking painting come to life in so many scenes and quite literally in some scenes where they mimic famous artwork. Right, where they recreate but, uh, famous artwork. Yes. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it's just, this movie is so batshit crazy that it's like, I don't care if I don't understand any of it because... I don't know that you're supposed to understand all of it. I think you're just supposed to go along for the ride.
1: Yes. And uh, Jonathan, what about, what are your thoughts on, you know, The Witch leading into this and then this movie?
2: I can't remember if The Witch was my first A24 movie or just my first horror movie, but I got sucked in. Eggers just has the feel with working with the cinematography, with the actors bringing in the world of, of yesteryear bringing in the the old uh, vernacular and have it feel natural with modern actors saying it it's shakespearean in the witch but going into the lighthouse it feels grungy as if you're actually talking with two crusty sailors who have been boating for years and that are stuck being these lighthouse uh keepers and it's i feel as if what works especially with it is uh, with the lighthouse in particular is you don't have to understand it on the multiple levels because you can see, as we, as you said, like, you can see uh, specific examples of art. You could also see allusions to uh, Greek mythology. And you could just see it just being uh, two men quarantined in a secluded area and they can't stand each other. And there's some spooky stuff.
1: Well, yeah, true. I mean, that's what I like about this movie a lot is kind of like people had that issue with the witch, at least who like saw the admittingly kind of uh, false advertising of like, oh, it's going to be a super spooky movie. And it's just more of this unnerving, gradual horror movie that just unravels in front of you. The Lighthouse is even less of like a technical horror movie, but it just is like this unsettling character study about these two dudes who are like stuck with each other. And I agree, like the quarantine element of it really like hit home because it's the first time I've seen it since it like came out in the theater, honestly. And it's just like so insanely accurate just being stuck with somebody who you don't really want to be stuck with in the middle of like a pandemic and shit like that. Uh but in this case just in like total isolation in the middle of this, you know, uh lighthouse area. And shout out, you mentioned the cinematography, to Jaron blasky who was nominated for this movie for an Oscar, and is like one award I agree you should be nominated for, but to get to our our main person and his really only scene partner in this movie aside from like seagulls and a mermaid Pattinson and Defoe are just kind of like made for each other in this weird way in this movie where like the moment I heard about this movie was like oh it's a two-hander starring Robert Pattinson and Willem Defoe I'm like oh that's amazing that's perfect I like because you can tell Pattinson is one of those guys who wants to have a Defoe style career where he's just like oh I want to be basically like a character actor who's able to go from like place to place and disappear into roles and what's so fascinating is how much, especially, like, Pattinson apparently was very much, like, practiced everything and was very exact, like, what he wanted to do with each day. And Defoe was, like, winging it. And you can tell that really comes across on screen, despite them kind of being different characters in that way. Where, like, Defoe is just really embracing, like, I'm a salty sea dog. And Pattinson is just, like, trying to be more put together in this way that's, like, really fascinating to see, like, contrast with each other, you can tell, like, they were kind of made to be in a two-hander like this.
0: Oh, absolutely, dude. And, you know, it, like we've already said, Pattinson has grown to into, into be just a terrific sort of oddball character actor, where he just does these really strange roles, but it, it was fully committed to him. And I'd argue, in this one, it's probably his strangest character we've seen him do so far. Uh, but it's completely, like, well, not completely, but it's also maybe my favorite performance of his so far. And I think it is absolutely uh, also because of him bouncing off of Willem Dafoe and Willem Dafoe's just a hamminess level that fits perfect for the character and it's like it, at every level it works. And just their their dialogue scenes, and how they you know they get drunk and they sing shanties, and then he's yelling about his farts, and then they're yelling about beans, and then you know he's jerking off to a little ivory mermaid. Like it's just it's fucking wild. This movie is so wild. If you took out one of the three main elements of this movie, you take out Eggers, Pattinson, or Defoe, I'd argue it wouldn't work. I think it's just sort of like the perfect combination of three. Just. Sort of bizarre and unique talents that make this movie as successful as it is.
1: What I love so much is how much there's these like horror elements and the unsettling imagery and the growing madness that's there, but also there's this weird, almost like rom com going on between those two, where particularly like Defoe doing the whole thing, but just like you were fond of me, lobster, weren't you? Like there's a genuine hurt. <laughs> That's there from Defoe about that and how like aggravated Pattinson is just like, oh, you and your fats and all this other shit. It just has this great back and forth. that feels like, oh, they're an old married couple now and they fucking can't stand each other. (laughs) It's so fucking funny at the same time that it's intense and terrifying and how so much of that because of the weird continuity of this movie where it feels like, oh, what happened yesterday was like three weeks ago as they like out say to each other just immediately puts you in this unease of just like oh wait their relationship could change on a dime where they could be screaming at each other about to murder each other and then they're like drinking and like dancing with each other at the same time The that weird bizarre tonal stuff just really gets you immersed and just like I don't know what to expect at any moment it really builds the tension while at the same time it's just really fucking entertaining on like even like a comedic level or a weirdly genuine romantic level to some degree it just there's such a weird Back and forth that's like so unique and doesn't like any other movie around this time would be able to do.
2: Honestly, I feel like most of what we see with Pattinson outside of uh just doing things around or even at night, I just think it's all dream sequences. Like, I don't think any of it happened. And even if defoe was like, Oh, we were talking about this thing out uh, uh like a few weeks ago, I think he's just messing with them because. I feel like there are points where he's he's kind of fooling with him because he's the young guy who really may not be strong enough to be a wiki using his own words. But it feels as if just being just being around and having fun drinking is yes, it, it, it shows that they're actually jovial. But I could see it more as them just be trying to have some sort of entertainment since they're the only ones there besides the seagulls. And maybe a mermaid, or maybe not, who knows? Uh, but it's more of the fact that if they have those moments, it 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 deters them or not to think about the isolation because that's when Pattinson starts seeing visions and thinks that he uh sees uh Defoe uh humping the, the bed or he's in the lighthouse being naked, turning into tentacles and and such, or other things like. I feel like it adds to the frustration because they're trying to actually have a connection at points, but it also feels like it could be something just to be professional. Cause we find out like the foe is also noting every little thing that he does in his ledger as a demerit. So it also feels like a betrayal of his own uh, behavior as trying to be cordial and be fun to just still be a boss. Yeah.
1: And shout out to the third co-star of that seagull. That, that, <laughs> yes. that fucking seagull That's every time she was... That fucking it's, seabird. It's bad luck to murder a seabird. I, I can't recite however many different weird things that Defoe says of just, like, his weird salty sea person language. Like, it feels like he's just literally the three-dimensional composite of, like, the, the fucking sea captain from The Simpsons,
2: Captain McAllister. <laughs> <laughs> he just has that yes. energy consistently. Even in the credits, they say that they uh read... Various journals from lighthouse owners and and other fiction, just to get uh, idea of how to get that vernacular down, because it, it feels like a cartoon, but it's still genuine, because it's Willem Defoe doing it. He believes that he's that he's been a wiki for decades, and a sailor before that.
0: He can also shoot light beams from his eyes.
1: <laughs> I think. <laughs> <laughs> Right, which is the recreation of the hypnosis. Right, the, right. The, right, the, the painting. Yeah, I, I just, I love that too, where those shots are so immaculately put together and are just, like we said, realistic depictions of, like, a painting just come to life. But then it will cut to something as simple as, like, fucking Pattinson taking out the, the, the fucking bedpans and going out to try and, like, throw it out into the sea only for... Literally, his shit to come flying back at his face. It's so great. We're like, this is a movie that could only be done by someone who has like a total lack of any kind of like self-image. That would be like, oh no, I have to be like the main star of this movie. I can't be somebody who's like degraded to any degree. No, Panson is willing to just do the wildest shit. Like when he's masturbating to the wooden figure of the mermaid and shit. Like he's just like, nope, I'm willing to completely degrade myself for this character. And I just love it how much he's just willing to go into weird, bizarre territory that makes him look like a crazy person.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, man. He's fully committed to, I mean, that's the one thing about, you know, Patson and, and again, Defoe and Eggers. I mean, this movie couldn't be made if they weren't fully committed, you know, on this wet, gross locale, probably cold. I'm sure. And it's, they're completely on board for it. And, and then, yeah, the visual stuff, like with the painting and stuff. And then, yeah, with Defoe, you know, hump in the bed. But then, like, whatever the mermaid sex organs are at the show, like, whatever's going on with that. And then it's just it, everything is brilliantly cascaded and and levels of Shadow. It also helps that it's Black and White, which bravo for going with that decision. It only amplifies the look of this movie. It, it works on so many levels. It, this film is so meticulously put together in every single way. Like, I mean, like Jonathan mentioned with them finding old diaries and journals and almost recreating this this language that, you know, only, you know, a handful of people really spoke and them fully diving into it and that becoming their vernacular. And then the clothes, the facial hair decisions, which there's great facial hair in this movie. It just, everything about this movie is just, like I said, perfectly done. It's like a master, I guess, painter with his brushstrokes. I mean, that's everything we're seeing on screen is just Eggers painting this beautiful yet dark and disturbing and violent sort of, painting it's just it's beautiful
2: man i'm just recalling uh Wilm dafoe doing that whole uh soliloquy that he curses to uh to pattinson after insulting the lobster and i'm just thinking like he really does look like some sort of greek god like he could be poseidon casting down nightmarish and and disgusting terrors onto this man which fits really well because we talk about being black and white there's also the light that's been far the far focus of it all that really is only amplified because it's in black and white. Cause it's like the biggest shining white thing. While everything else is still so gray and, and murky either from the clouds, from the storm, from the crap that's being thrown on Rob Pattinson, just the grime of working through all of the lighthouse work he's dragging oil drums Like it's, it's nasty, but they really do emphasize on when things are so ethereal with the light.
1: Yeah, it's like the combination of the light and also that endless foghorn. Like how that just keeps repeating in your ear this whole time. It's like that one source of light and the boom, boom. It just really just gets you on edge. It kind of feels like apparently they had originally tried to adapt the lighthouse, which is like the un finished Edgar Allan Poe short story as this, but watching it, it feels like you're in a telltale heart situation where you're, especially with like a Pattinson who has this like whole thing about the murder that he committed, that he's hiding and like changing the different names and stuff like that. Um, It does such a great job of really getting that like constant, worry and the thrills of just like the tension rising the drudgery of working at a lighthouse being covered in this filth being like constantly rained on being laughed at by seagulls all of this it just like really berates down to the point where it just causes madness and it, it, it feels in a weird way kind of like um the the weird comparison besides all this like great artwork and stuff like that it's like that ren Stimpy episode space madness where it's just, like, the constant build of, like, the comedy also adds to the tension of just, oh my god, I gotta release it somehow, I'm so infuriated and angry, to, like, that scene you're talking about, I love the way that Defoe not only delivers, I think, like, the hark, and going forward, like, all about Poseidon, also, this stuff is so great, and then the pause, followed by Patton saying, like, all right, your lobster was all right, have it your way, <laughs> just such a perfect comedic punctuation point to that,
2: yeah, I get it's it's the funniest part of the movie. It's the one I always remember. It also I I guess I kinda wish that we could have Wilm Defoe just do more Shakespearean work like that, just so I can hear him just scream out all this insanity. Because it just it just fits him. It really does.
1: Well look we we might be getting that with the Northmen, oh, which I'm boy. so excited yeah, about. That oh, yes. fucking
0: face of his in that trailer what is happening there?
1: (laughs) But like, what I love about like, with this movie and The Witch, both really show just like, I want to see more people do Robert Eggers style shit. Like in that movie, where we're getting like, Nicole Kidman and Ethan Hawke. Just like, I want to see what he does to those two. Just completely warps whatever idea or image you have of those two as characters. And just really forms them into, especially in that case, like the dirty, grimy Viking movie. Hell yeah. So excited to see whatever the fuck that ends up being.
0: No, I agree. I'm super excited for North you know Eggers is to me one of the most exciting guys out there right now especially in horror like you got you know him you got Arya Aster you got all these guys and then you know in the more mainstream you got like a Flanagan who's doing a lot of good work um but just something about Eggers and his ability to like even with the witch to use only natural light and in this to do black and white with the you know the scale of it all and then Northman taking Nicole Kidman and Ethan Hawk and bjork i guess is also in it and willem dafoe and all these weird sort of choices and plopped them down in the middle of like a period piece fantasy viking movie like he's really doing some exciting stuff and sort of not necessarily cutting edge but stuff that doesn't usually pop up in you know theatrical release sort of films and and a little bit higher on maybe mainstream like the witch wasn't necessarily mainstream i would argue it found more of its audience on home video release but lighthouse a lot of people were excited about it and uh, because i just remember the trailers and people were like what the fuck is this like people i know who don't even care about genre films were you know curious about what it might be i think a lot of that has to do with the patent of it all to be honest with you there's really nobody out there making movies with sort of this meticulous but also reckless abandon like Eggers is, and I just, I'm so excited to see where he goes.
1: Basically, what I would kind of equate Eggers to is he feels like somebody who would have been around in the time where, like, these films were made. Like, The Witch feels a lot kind of like a modern interpretation of, like, almost a Hammer-style unsettling thriller, or this movie feels obviously like a, a much older, kind of like almost silent film era with like the aesthetics of it, the way the aspect ratio and stuff like that is. Like, it feels like he's one of those guys, but he also likes to dip into like the modern cinematic thing in terms of just, I want to do weird fucked up shit that like whatever Hayes Code or whatever would not have allowed us to do <laughs> back in the time when this was a popular style. I want to do just weird shit with old cinematic techniques. I think it's like, he's one of the better examples of that where some people can use it just to like blandly recreate older styles of film as opposed to he's just like now I'm gonna take this and do weird shit and I just I love that with especially this movie it feels like he, another rumored thing he's been tempted to do was Nosferatu which there have been so many different versions of Nosferatu and it's like oh how is he gonna do it differently now it's just like I must see what your Nosferatu is whatever the fuck you're gonna do with that yeah if anybody's gonna do it he's the guy I want to do it you thought Count Orlok was a fucking freak oh you have no idea <laughs>
2: I think it really works because Edgar's can capture the aspects of those older films or even also the period pieces to make it feel modern as well. I think that's what makes him different from other directors who just want to recreate the things because he's deriving something new with it. He is still talking about things that are still modern, like the sea shanties out of nowhere became really popular in the 2020s. And surprising, as we said already, it does fit as a perfect quarantine movie. I just think he has this prescient touch for this that makes it more interesting and it can actually be good for reviewing. That's why I'm really interested in seeing The Northman because I thought at first he was just doing Hamlet on steroids, but it looks like it's just even crazier than I can ever imagine. And Nosferatu, if that rumor is true, who knows? Maybe there's just something about a German and Slavic vampire lore that we don't know about that it's just going to be even nuttier. We're looking at The Lighthouse as a film about two men in northeast area of, of the U.S. and he's bringing up stuff from European art, from Greek tragedies and all that. It's not something standard and it's impossible to be made without him. And I do agree with what Adam keeps repeating. I feel like the biggest part is Robert Eggers, but it's just exemplified with the actors as well.
1: Well, I guess, Jonathan, those sound like the start to pretty good final thoughts. I guess uh, wrap yourself uh, up with particularly your thoughts on like what this really excites you about Pattinson's career. How do you think he can kind of take what he did here and move forward with it?
2: I would have to say Robert Pattinson has been showing that his great character actor work in in, in independent film is to show a strangeness that should not be shied away it should be explored and it should come out in ways that are engaging rather than just distressing you should bring out the power to actually empathize with whatever he's dealing with and that's how as an actor he can go further so that the audience can still love him beyond just being a pretty face to be that weirdo that is also still handsome and you still want to see him go and do nuttier things, work with actors that you would only dream of actually having this guy work with together. That is the one thing that I wish Robert Pattinson continues on because this is the stuff that makes legends. Well, Adam, your final thoughts on The Lighthouse?
0: I mean, it's just such a bizarre, weird little movie that it's just, once it's on, I you can't take your eyes off of, at least in my case. People talk about, you know, artsy films or things like that, like, I would use this as definitely as an example, but in the best possible way. Like, not as an insult. Like, this movie is a piece of moving art in every way, from the way it's shot, acted, the color, the ambient noises. Just everything about it just works on every single level. This is, you know, like I said, I love The Witch. I, I think The Witch is my favorite of his two. But this, to me, is definitely the most perfect movie he's made yet. It's just, it's incredible.
1: Yeah, I mean, I... I uh, fucking, just love this movie. I think it's such a great example of like having such a limited sort of cast and location, all sort of stuff. And it, it's a great example of a bottle movie, where just you are stuck in this place and you have these horrible thoughts of dread and worry in a way that kind of evokes like. The Shining, to me, in terms of just, like, oh, you're stuck at this location only, instead of even a vast hotel in the middle of the snow. It's this shitty fucking rock where you're stuck inside a shitty cabin and there's a giant lighthouse. It's, like, your only beacon of any kind of attention. It's such a great, sort of surreal, weird art movie, but also is willing to do just, like, funny, absurd shit. Like, literally having shit thrown in Robert Pattinson's face or when they do the sea shanties at each other and, like, Pattinson just keeps dancing like, forever, and just this endless loop of just, like, him going harder and harder with each verse. I love every single time that, like, this movie does something weird and off-kilter and bizarre and even crude. It just adds to the perfect tapestry of, like, this is both a beautiful portrait of two people going mad and a silly buddy comedy where these two guys like, want to murder each other. <laughs> it manages to, like, walk all these different tightropes so beautifully and perfectly, and yeah, I, I dig it quite a bit. But now, it's time that we did our weekly segment, where after we discuss our double feature, uh, Adam, myself, and a guest, potentially, like Jonathan here, um, does the double redo, where we uh, each have four movies, two good and two bad ones, two recommend, and two not so much recommend. And uh, for Robert Pattinson, I'll go ahead and start with my choices here. Um, My first choice for the good is a movie that he made around the same time as, like, A Lighthouse, um, but I I think is so stellar, and one of the more underrated ones, I think, of High Life, which is a sci-fi film that um, it starts off with Pattinson in a space station alone, except for it's just him and a baby. Like, there's no one else in this crew. They're just stuck in deep space, and Pattinson has to basically, like, do manual tasks to survive from day to day and gets, you know, just the bare minimum for him and this child to eat. And survive. And that's about as much as I want to say about plot because from there, this movie becomes a weird, psychosexual, maddening movie. And I believe this was Claire Denis, who's not a filmmaker I'm as much familiar with. She's a French director who I know has done similar, like, weird psychosexual movies. And I think she does such a great job here with making, like, something like space and being isolated and alone feel so. Engrossing and natural in a way that it feels kind of like a movie about being at the edge of the world, or sort of like in a almost apocalyptic event, where it's just you and, in this case, like a child who you want to try and like survive with in it, it's such a really interesting fascinating way and i love how the whole movie develops i think i get really emotionally choked up by the end of this movie it's a weird movie where it has stuff like that, but also some of the most bizarre sexual things i've ever seen when they have some flashbacks and stuff that's just like insane just weird shit that i think it does such a great job of really immersing you in like this weird bizarre but fascinating like sci-fi prediction of like what interstellar travel could be when you're stuck there with like a bunch of perverts, quite frankly, and how you grow from like being a perverted young person to being someone who has to carry a responsibility after a certain point. I think it's such a stellar job with all of that. It's a weird movie, but one I dig. And speaking of weird, um, I have my favorite of the big franchise that he was a part of. I have The Twilight Saga, Breaking Dawn Part Two, which was the last film in the franchise, um, where like You know, obviously, I wasn't as into Twilight when it was out, and I just kind of, like, ignored it for the most part. When you get to, like, from the first movie all the way to this movie, so much bizarre shit happens. And this is the movie where it all just culminates. Like, they broke up that last book and decided, you know what, with the second one? We're basically going to do, like, the best X-Men movie that's been made in quite a while, with just all the different vampires that show up with different powers. And also, we're going to try and juggle Edward and... Bella's kind of, like, culmination of their, like, married life that they've had now, but also the child that they have that's rapidly growing, and also the Taylor Lautner-Jacob character has imprinted on. Just all this weird shit that's going on here, all the way to this amazing climax, which I won't spoil it for anybody if you have not seen this, but it has one of the best examples of, like, having your cake and eating it, too, I've ever seen in a movie. It just does it so perfectly, and it includes, obviously, Michael Sheen. Just... Chewing up so much scenery in such a fun way. I think it's just this perfect, bizarre punctuation mark to this weird series that has so many things trying to try and juggle with, like the source material and the visions of Bill Condon, the director, and everybody else involved. That's just like, it's such a fascinating, weird artifact of a movie. Um, and then, my two bad, uh, we talked about one of uh, the Cronenberg patents and collaborations here. Um, my first bad is the first collaboration they had, Cosmopolis which basically stars Pattinson as this rich CEO type who spends most of the movie inside of his limo, driving around and having conversations with random people that show up, like Jay Baruchel shows up, speaking of Canadian David Cronenberg. Julia Bono shows up. Oh, it's a ride through, like, just this stuck-up asshole of a CEO just and having these big philosophical conversations about what culture is and what life is and all this other stuff this is a movie when i first saw it in 2012 i loathed and i rewatched it for the first time in like a decade for like right before we did the show and i just don't like it at all at this point so it that's how much i'm able to increase at this point with this movie i know there's some people who are fans of it i just think it's my least favorite david cronenberg movie probably of like his like Professional made movies, and Pattinson I think is kind of saddled with so much of, like carrying the movie that it feels like it's too much weight on his shoulders. Especially in the same year that he was like finishing up Twilight, it feels like he's taking a bit too much on. It's also making the same point over and over again about capitalism and Wall Street and all this other bullshit that it just gets very tiring after a while. And speaking of tiring. And long and endless. I have the Netflix movie he did just last year, uh, well, a couple years ago now, uh, The Devil All the Time, which is basically just this walk through human misery of a movie that stars Tom Holland and a huge cast of various other people that are pretty impressive. Um, But it's just this walking misery porn of just like, oh, hey, you know, this character and like their relation to each other in this like Southern Gothic sort of environment. uh, I guess what all of them like either die horribly or are awful assholes so to each other and terribly abusive it's so endlessly long and dull and just repetitive and the only bright spot is actually Pattinson because Pattinson plays this weird preacher guy that comes in the middle of all of this and Pattinson's basically playing it like a weird king of the hill character down to the voice and everything and he's like a bright spot that shows up in this movie just like oh thank god he's here he shows up like an hour into the movie he's really stellar and then he leaves the movie about 20 minutes after that and then you're just stuck with the drudgery they just, like, awfulness for awfulness' sake. That's why I feel this movie exemplifies that way more than Maps to the Stars. It's just, like, shitty thing after shitty thing happening to people in a way that's just like, oh, isn't this, like, deep and f- interesting? And it's like, no, it's just kind of a bummer and boring after a while. I know I've seen at least two of yours. I'm not still not 100% sure I've seen Cosmopolis
0: or not. Um, if I did, I don't remember any of it, and that's very possible as well, because... It, it, nah, it, no, um, High Life. I still haven't seen. I really want to. Uh, I own it. I just haven't watched it yet. And it's just one of those that I've always sort of danced back and forth. Like, oh, maybe I'll watch that tonight. I just never committed to it. But you just hearing your description of it, like, push that higher up on the list of things to watch. So I'm excited for that one. Uh, Breaking Dawn Part Two. Completely agree. I, I think it's it's super silly. And kind of ridiculous, but in all the right ways. Uh, the only thing that do- really, really doesn't work in the movie is the CGI face baby. It's so off-putting. <laughs> it's well, like... to be
1: fair, if you've seen the practical effects baby they had on set, you know that that's the better case scenario. Unfortunately,
0: but couldn't you just get a baby?
1: No, no, because the whole thing is that like the Renesmee character is like growing exponentially, uh, like with every so... second. So, I need yeah. to show you that that regular baby. That yeah, regular terrifying.
0: Send me that. Yes, um, I will.
1: I'll probably do that during the show here.
0: And I saw Devil all the time. Uh, big surprise. Kind of liked it. I think it's maybe because I'm really into sort of Southern Gothic things, like music, movies, books, sort of tales, all that stuff. I, I kind of have a weird fascination with it. I don't know if it's because like my family roots are from like the hollers of Kentucky and things like that like I still got family down there it's just it's always I've always found it fascinating and, and interesting now I will absolutely agree with you that is not a fun movie as far as like you're not going to feel good pretty much every character I, I in fact I'm almost positive every character you meet in it ends up with some kind of fucked up thing happening to them, or they're fucked up in some way. Uh, it is not, I would say, the feel-good movie of the year. But uh, something about it, I, I just really like it. And yes, Pattinson, even against the incredible cast, just blows everyone out of the water. He's so weird. And with that fucking voice that he decided on, I don't get it, but I'm totally on board for it. And uh, he, yeah, he's really, really fun. Scumbag, but really, really fun. Uh, yeah, that's a that's a damn weird movie, and oh my god, <laughs> <He's> so, <laughs> <awful>. <laughs> so I'm looking at the practical baby. Uh,
2: give me that CG baby all day, son.
0: <laughs> this thing, I'm not fucking sleeping tonight. Great, great. So that's what happened in Nikki Reed's career. She had to hold that thing. She's cursed. <laughs> Just fucking hell.
1: Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> go ahead Jonathan. i sorry you yeah. had to react to those
2: shows. yeah i have to say high life was actually one of the movies i wanted to put in my double redo but you are the host it is definitely a hard recommend if you enjoyed uh the lighthouse you should definitely check out high life to go even further into the into psychosis and sexualness it's that sexuality and energy is still there while going through an existential story and I think Pattinson is definitely the best. I won't even spoil some of the other cast members because they really just come up and it's like, is that really that one? Oh my God, it is them. Like it has that feel and it's something that needs to be seen. Like I jumped in not knowing anything and it was a ride. I'll be fair. Yeah, Twilight Breaking Down Part 2 is the best one because like you said, they do explore all those different vampires from the different uh, covens and different countries. And it shows what they could have done as a greater story. And plus, you got to have more crazy, kitschy Michael Sheen just squeeing over vampire girls. It's it's just delightful. I don't, I don't know how you could forget Cosmopolis. I remember seeing half a Cosmopolis years ago, and then I rewatched it for this uh, episode for the rest, uh, to, just so I can say I finished watching it. And yeah, it is an unforgettable trash fire. Like, it clearly was made just to be an answer to Occupy Wall Street, which was happening around the same time, but it just feels even more decadent and far more pretentious than anything we watched. Like, literally, if you had problems with Maps of the Stars, watching Cosmopolis will wipe away any reservations you have overall, because it was a mistake, especially this being like... Actually, I think Cosmopolis was right before Breaking Dawn Part 2. This was a sign that maybe Robert Pattinson didn't have it because he really was not good in this movie. And I miss the devil all the time because Netflix really does dump the dramatic movies out and just says, it's here, go watch it. And no one talks about it. I barely jumped to see a netflix movie when it first comes out unless if it has an actor or it's from a director or some sort of connection that makes me want to compel to see it right away i really need word of mouth to find out if the netflix movie is actually going to be good because it's that hard and no one talked about this and now that you've talked about a little bit about i'm probably okay with just forgetting about checking it out
1: well you may want to check out adam's choices for the double redo Adam. Oh,
0: it's my turn. Okay, so my good choices, uh, my first one, I have one, not my favorite of the franchise. I'd say the movie that that came before it was my favorite of the franchise. But I think it is an absolutely, you know, this is the sort of role that put him on the map for a lot of people. And he's quite good in it. I have Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, um, where he's Cedric. And I think it's he's a great character. He's also a huge important part of the story going forward, especially as sort of what Harry becomes and how it affects him and sort of everyone else around him. And it also really makes the threat of Voldemort real and tangible for the first time really in the series, because it's, you know, it's Voldemort in the flesh, as we'll see him for the rest of the series. And It's just, it's a great little performance. He's not in it a ton, but you really get this sort of warmness to him and you get why Harry befriends him so fast and why everybody's kind of fond of him and why he's so popular. And yet, you know, he's not really a jerk. He's just a good kid. And uh, I, I just absolutely think it's a great performance and it absolutely deserved to get him some attention. And then my second good one, I have the third film in the Twilight Saga. I have Eclipse. And the reason I put Eclipse in here is because Eclipse is unlike any of the other in the franchise. Uh, A, probably because it was directed by David Slade, who did like 30 Days of Night, things like that. But it is so dark compared to the rest of them and so brutal. And I'd argue it has the most sort of horror tinge out of any of the other films in the franchise. Um, This one, when you watch it, you feel like, you're watching a fucking vampire movie. It, it's just, it's brutal in its execution. It's pretty well acted by everybody. I'd say except for maybe Royce taylor Howard, but not her fault. Um, it's just, it's, it's a really solid sort of entry in the franchise that took what the first two did in a much darker sort of tone. And then obviously it was changed by the next film, but I just think it, it's, it's actually probably my favorite of the franchise. And then for my bad, I have my least favorite of the franchise. I have Breaking Dawn Part One, which Breaking Dawn Part One just feels like a schmaltzy passing point movie to where you really only need to watch the second one because nothing really happens in the first one. They go to an island and bang, like, oh, good for you. Like, I don't really give a shit. Nothing of it has any weight to it, in my opinion, like the second one does. Um, it's just, it's. I just find the first one very sort of boring and meandering. And you could tell it's, you know, the source material stretched out to two movies for no reason. I mean, it's not a sort of egregious to say like the Hobbit trilogy, but it's still it's unnecessary for it to be two films. Um, and then my other bad one, I have another overtly long movie that, you know, talk about two movies earlier with Robert Pattinson that I don't really understand. I'm a little bit confused by. This one would take the fucking cake because I still have no idea what the hell's going on in this movie. And that is the very recent uh supposedly save the box office uh, sort of movie by Chris Nolan Tenet. Um, I think Pattinson's really fun in it. I I think most of the cast is pretty fun, except for maybe kind of the brand and whatever he's doing with his accent and die job. Such psycho scientific babble speak. They try to explain to you, but not in a way that is in my opinion, even remotely easy to sort of follow and comprehend. I think the effects work of it all is in, in the spectacle of it all is really effective. The action scenes are pretty thrilling and, and you know, the sort of reverse and in, in forward motion aspect of a lot of the action scenes is really fun, but it becomes almost just that. That's the only thing in the movie that's really exciting. The rest of it is just sort of gets lost through, either too much or not enough explanation
1: well i'll address the twilight of it all first where i think uh, i agree that eclipse is very fun i think that's one of the better ones in the series as well uh because it also has some of the better action bits And i do love that david slade publicly dissed twilight like when he's promoting i think like you know not too long after 30 days of night was like on dvd or whatever he's just like oh twilight's bullshit it's terrible and then he just was like oh no that was a joke wink Wink. Then, like, yeah, the Eclipse has some of my favorite things, particularly the tent scene with Edward and Jacob <laughs> having to, like, cuddle for warmth around Bella I, I think is, like, such a fun back-and-forth thing with Lautner and Pattinson. And then Breaking Dawn Part 1, I mostly agree, is, like, very padded. I think the opening bits with, like, the marriage and then their honeymoon I think is fun. And then it's a lot of padding in between that and the ending, which I disagree, is not interesting in terms of, like... The, the the fucking weird burst they have to shoot around it's like a like an attempt at a PG-13 David Cronenberg movie i find fucking bug nuts interesting <laughs> i think the the problem is just that like it should not have been two movies i agree that should have been like maybe a 30 minute or so prologue to breaking dawn part 2 and you'd have like a great movie as opposed to a kind of meandering first movie and then a pretty fun second one um but then i mean with your other choices tenant is a weird one where I initially saw that uh, in a drive-in because we were deep in pre-vaccine times, and worst movie to watch at a drive-in, terrible decision for me to do because you have to be, pay so much attention, and when you're in a fucking drive-in setting, it's a bad call. But I did rewatch it at home with subtitles and everything, and I would still say it's lower echelon, uh, no one for me as well. I'm not a huge fan of it. I think it is like so obfuscating. There are fun. Like, set pieces, and I do like John David Washington and Robert Pattinson's chemistry. It's just, like, time bros, basically. I think they're fun together. But overall, yeah, I think it's a a pretty um, underwhelming Nolan effort. And then Goblet of Fire, yeah, despite all of the problems that are inherent to Harry Potter currently, both the weird directions the franchise has gone, and then also the awful opinions of jk rowling it's weird to kind of go back to that but yeah i think cedric diggory did such a great job and shout out to the guy who ever plays uh cedric diggory's dad it's one of the most soul-crushing scenes when Yo. spoilers for an old ass movie yeah. <laughs> that okay. fucking that like, my that's my boy that's my boy just oh it's devastating it's it's weird.
0: horrible oh my god it really like, hurts you're... hard Ugh. all
2: right i do have to say like cedric diggory seems to be the big Thumbprint on Harry Potter. I feel like with just uh, having Pattinson being that jovial guy trying to help Harry, it really does cement that horrible death. And also, I think maybe there's a slight uh, inclination that Pattinson may have influenced the whole point of that uh, sequel play, since it's all about going back in time to save Cedric Diggory. And it's definitely not just because of the character in the book. It it just feels perfect that they're almost trying to save. Pattinson from being in twilight speaking of the twilight sequels i think eclipse's best parts are definitely the flashbacks to uh the the rest of the uh cullen family seeing how they were when they were first turned into vampires dealing with uh, the civil war and the 1920s and such like just seeing how these immortals were when they were human it was just more fun and that gets cut off with uh breaking down part one because like you guys said The only thing that really mattered about it was the horrific uh, pregnancy, which could have been uh, tacked on at the beginning of part two and it would have been a really awesome ending. Tenet is a weird one for me. I did not like uh, Interstellar or uh, Dunkirk. So engaging with Christopher Nolan after those two movies who I felt were very padded, I looked at it more as just a what-if James Bond movie And I didn't try to engage it any deeper than that. And I had a far better time watching it. I do think Pattinson and uh, Washington do work out really well. And I do want to see more of them together in other movies. Make it some sort of lethal weapon. I don't know. Something weird like that could be fine. But other than that, it's nothing really to engage. I guess now it's my turn. For my good choices, I picked A Good Time. Uh, from the Safdie brothers with uh, Pattinson also with uh, Ben Safdie as uh, two brothers who uh, a- attempt a robbery and it goes awry with one of them getting arrested and it just gets nuttier from there. If you've only seen Uncut Gems from uh, the safety brothers starring uh, Adam Sandler, you should definitely see Good Time. Because it, it it is a good time, but it's also a bad trip. Like It is insanity to see what Pattinson goes through in 24 hours trying to save his brother, which really gives up that that emotional through line that it goes to places that I don't think anyone would expect. And uh, my other choice is The Lost City of Zed starring uh, Charlie Hunnam. Uh, Thomas had it as one of his good picks for the redo in the adventure episode. And I have to uh, echo all of his uh, his opinions because it's actually a really good tale of seeing how exploration and colonialism is reexamined by a man who's obsessed with trying to find this this white whale of a civilization. And you have Robert Pattinson as his great side character, one of his later missions of trying to find uh, Zed, and he's just great with the facial hair, especially if you do like. Uh, his, his mustache in The Lighthouse, you should definitely see the facial hair work there. And he's also giving all he can, because I think this was the film that Amazon really wanted to actually get far more attention in the Oscars. But for some reason, it was a summer release. It's bizarre. For my bad picks, I went with a theme with this because Robert Pattinson seems to have really two big modes in his career. It's either romance films to attract uh, a mostly female audience or weird indie films where he does something interesting. My first pick is Water for Elephants, which is, uh, I can't recall the uh, director right now, but uh, Pattinson plays a uh, med school dropout who goes to join the circus to uh, take care of the animals. And he falls in love with the ringmaster, Christoph Waltz's wife, reese witherspoon and it's a dull romance like you just think that these guys that these two are just really good friends who bond over animals especially the elephants and uh dealing with like de- uh, with the with working in the circus in the turn of the century but christoph waltz is he's just doing his usual shtick and it doesn't work here and he's always just questioning Pattinson, like, are you, are you messing with my wife? And every time you get those kind of scenes, Pattinson's like, no, nothing's happening. Because you, you, you believe with Pattinson because there's no romantic chemistry between this 22-year-old man and this uh, four-year-old woman. It does not work at all. And uh, at least Pattinson's still good in the movie, but it's not a movie that you could just jump for for that. I would say pick any of the Twilight movies if you want to see romance. And obviously... Who hasn't? Especially with our choices, the uh, my other bad pick is the Rover. Guy Pierce is in the is in Australia ten years after a nondescript apocalypse, and he's just trying to get his car back from Robert Pattinson's brother because uh, Scoop McNary, the the villain of the story, which really isn't much of a villain, is just a guy. He just takes the the car because their truck didn't work, and he left Robert Pattinson for dead because. He's just an asshole brother. And then Pattinson throughout the entire movie is just annoying. Uh, when you mentioned about him uh, doing voices like kind of like a King of the Hill character, he's like doing a weird fusion of Bobby Hill with some weird Bush accent. And it just mixes horribly with his British accent because it's it's it fades in and out. And it's just the worst type of dialect that he's just spewing. And he's already an annoying character that is just unbearable. And you just have Guy Pierce stone faced. For 90% on the movie, and it's just not a good run. Like, you're literally roving with these guys across uh, bushland, just the outback, and you have these great shots of, of the deserts, but these characters are just awful.
1: Well, I have not seen Water for Elephants, which uh should mention you forgot the director. It's Francis Lawrence of the Hunger Games sequels and Constantine fame as we're, we're all aware of him, we all love. Um, but uh, I have seen at least your your other choices. Um, the Rover, I think, is kind of a weird, interesting attempt at, like you mentioned, like it's an early example of him trying to kind of do something weird with his uh, sort of like post-Twilight career. And I think it's him and Guy Pierce are kind of fascinating in a way that keeps me somewhat interested in the movie. But um, I, I do agree that it's, it's not necessarily my favorite. It's very forgettable, especially as like an A24 movie that's just kind of like, eh. That's astonishing, really. Uh, but it could be even just kind of like whatever forgettable. Um, but then Good Time, I love. Good Time's a oh, great time, for sure. Uh, but not in a way that's pleasant. It's it's simultaneously, like you mentioned, a great time, but a bad, bad trip. And it's, it's one of the best kind of like one horrible night movies. Pattinson does such a perfect job of like being a guy who only knows how to get from, like, one step to the next. Like, he only knows he can survive from, like, one footstep to the next one, just to get from, like, that one point A to point B, and he's just scrounging the whole time to keep going further. It's such an astonishing performance. that really cemented for me, like, oh my god, this dude is amazing. I don't want to see him do more weird shit like this. And, yeah, like I mentioned, Lost City of Z was uh, one I did previously. Great movie. And Pattinson has a big bushy beard in it. Always a plus
0: great, big, bushy beard. <laughs> um, <Hell yeah. laughs> but no, I, uh, I haven't seen either of the bad choices. Um, Water for Elephants, I could... Like no. <laughs> Zero interest. Uh, Rover, I actually did want to see. Uh, I'm a Guy Pierce fan uh, for the most part. I mean, I understand he kind of does whatever, but when he's good, he's great. Um, and, and I like a good, you know, sort of post-apocalyptic tale. So... I haven't watched it yet and hearing your description of it doesn't make me want to like bump it to the top of the list in any way. I mean, I'll probably eventually see it, but yeah, you know, they can wait. And then, uh, yeah, good time. I agree. Great time. Um, I do like uncut gems a lot, but I actually prefer good time. Um, I I think it's really just kinetic and crazy and it's a probably might even still be Pattinson's best. Uh, he's just phenomenal in it. And then, um, I you know, I, I said it even on the adventure episode as well, Lost City of Z is just one of those underseen gems that's out there. And it's, you know, great Pattinson, but easily probably the best Hunnam's been yet too. It's just, that's a really, really fucking stellar movie.
1: Yes, and let's uh, quickly repeat our titles here, just to make sure everybody uh, got them, as they're in the middle of all that discussion. Uh, My two good picks were High Life and Twilight Breaking Dawn Part 2, and my two bad were Cosmopolis and the Devil All the Time.
0: And my two good picks were Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, and the Twilight Saga Eclipse, and my bads were Twilight Saga Breaking Dawn Part 1, and also Tenet.
2: My good choices were Good Time and The Lost City of Zed, and my bad choices were Water for Elephants and The Rover.
1: Yeah, so we recommend you all submit your titles for a uh, Double redo, and we'll gladly uh, talk about them on the show. Like, you know what, shout out to Christian Alvarez, loyal fan, previous li- guest, all this other stuff, who says uh, for the adventure episode, he submitted the Double redo of, quote, uh, Romancing the Stone and the Rocketeer, while uh, the bads would be Red Sonia and Howard the Duck.
2: Does Howard the Duck count as an adventure?
1: I mean, look, it was—it's a roaring ride, roaring <laughs> fun ride. Fucking guy. <laughs> yeah, thanks,
0: Christian. Yeah, thanks, buddy.
2: Yeah. yeah, Christian, good choices. I'm not trying to knock you with Howard the Duck. It's just, it feels like the off one out of the four.
0: You could tell him to fuck off. It's okay.
2: Only you can do that, Adam. That's oh, your okay. job. Well,
0: yeah, Christian, go fuck yourself, buddy.
1: <laughs> Well, uh, we have some people to thank before we do our picking for next week. Stay tuned for that. We want to thank people like Chris Oliver for the intro and after music used in our show. Listen more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Thanks to Christian Thor Lally for our artwork. Uh, follow him on Twitter at night of water. That's night with a K underscore of underscore water uh, to find all sorts of great stuff that he's uh, you know made, especially on his link tree where you can find his Instagram and stuff like that. And we also want to thank our uh, supporters on Patreon, patreon.com slash where for just $1 a month you get access to bonus episodes that we do, and uh, also you get to vote in polls and stuff where you can choose what we do for an individual episode as a topic or a movie or whatever. And some bonus podcasts that's out right now. Uh, one, we would have recently released our Roadhouse Commentary featuring a friend of the show, Shaquille Lambert. Uh, where we watch the movie along with him for the first time in his case Uh, because Adam and I are big fans of the movie Shaquille goes completely in blind and it's a pretty fun discussion that we uh, had a lot of enjoyment recording Um, and then look forward to of course we're talking about Robert Pattinson for The Batman uh, we'll be doing an On the Edge Relevance episode about The Batman that'll be uh, pretty special but you'll have to, to hear it
2: to see exactly why ooh I can't wait
1: We're going to be doing 1920s noir characters the whole time.
2: Yeah, it was all right, see? Yeah.
0: I love the bat and the cat. Got a little moxie on them.
1: Yeah, see?
0: (laughs) kid's going places.
1: Yes, I'm sure Jonathan is so excited because he is, of course, along with being a great guest and a great friend, a patron, and we really appreciate all of those factors to you, sir. Thank you for being on the show and for supporting us, and please, where can people find you out there on the internet?
2: Oh, it's a pleasure to always be on the show, Thomas, and... Uh, you can find me on social media at black underscore gendo B-L-A-C-K underscore G-E-N-D-O. I'm more or less just retweeting anime stuff. I may have a comment here and there. It's just this this whole quarantine world is just harder for me to go on Twitter regularly without someone saying something horrific. So it's I'm I'm seldom there, but if you want to connect with me, you can also find me on Facebook, uh Jonathan Hats Mikhail. Y O N A T H A N, last name H A, B as in boy, T as in tower, E as in Edward, M I C H A E L. We can talk about film or whatever. I am an easygoing guy and I really do like talking with you guys about random movies every couple of months or seems like now it's been over a year since the last episode I was on. Be on more often.
1: Yes, we should definitely have you on sooner rather Yay. than later. And uh, if you want to, you know, follow us on those Hellscapes Jonathan mentioned on Twitter and Facebook, we are at DEDBpod, where we post uh, episodes and little fun bits and pieces and such. And uh, also, you can uh, submit feedback to us, double-edgedshablebill at gmail.com, all spelled out. And if you want to find more of me, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and letterboxes at NotTheWho'sTommy. And you also do some writing at both marianitomas.wordpress.com, my personal blog, and at film-cred.com, where I'm a staff writer.
0: You can find me on the Twitter or Instagram at Atom or Adam. A-T-O-M underscore O-R underscore A-D-A-M. And on am letterboxd at Schwanson. That's S-C-H-W-A-N-D-T-S
1: and for more of our audio antics subscribe to us on apple Podcasts, stitcher and other podcasting platforms if you're listening on talk film society why not listen to all the other great shows on the network besides us uh but you can also dig into our archives on our Podbean main feed there's a link in the description for that for these several episodes we did before we ever joined talk film society and if nothing else if you can't support us on the patreon the completely cool and free way to help us out is to rate, review, or simply share the show around because that gets us more visibility. Yeah, super free to do. Not just free, super free. Super free.
0: Yes. It's like a like like super freak like Rick like Rick James. Rick James. Remember that joke? Yeah.
1: Oh, so (laughs) relevant! Just delivering all the witty, relevant things. Well, of course, now it's time we finally did our picking for next week, where basically at the end of every show, if you're new, um, Adam and I either have two good or two bad movies. We switch up on the quality for that. We've assigned numbers between 1 and 10 for our choices. And uh, either each other or a guest, like Jonathan, picks number between 1 and 10 to get us our good and our bad feature. Uh, though, keep in mind, there's a couple things for this one. One, there's the Godfather rule, where back last May, Adam and I were given vetoes to potentially use to where if we hear a certain choice that is initially picked, we can pause and say, you know what, actually, I'll take the cannoli, and thus that choice is eliminated, but we have to go with whatever other choice there is. Adam has used his single veto. He won't get another one until May. I have one burning a hole in my back pocket. I got to use by this coming May, or else it'll just completely dissipate into the ether. So it's got to be used at some point soon. And uh, the topic for next week is an interesting one, especially for all you Talk Film Society folks who might not be aware of what we do on the show. Uh, basically, around every 50 episodes or so, Adam and I like to look into the past of our show and see choices we've had. Obviously, given you know we have two choices each uh, for every episode, uh, one choice gets chosen, the other one doesn't. And we've kept a backlog of those that have been uh, discarded off to the side. And we give them a bit of a redemption where, you know, just we take two potential choices and see if they have another chance at uh, being covered on the show. For this particular episode, we already have the good one locked up because uh, the Godfather rule veto cannot be used on anything voted on by our patrons at patreon.com slash And you all chose Adam's good choices and it was between Whiplash and then the ultimate winner, which was Itman, which we'll be talking about next week as a good choice.
0: Oh, fuck yeah. Donnie Yen kicks all the ass.
1: Yeah, he does. I'm, I'm shocked. Donnie Yen? Yeah. Kicking ass? I know. I oh. know. I know. I know. But, well, Adam, since I can't use my veto on that, and you have no veto, we have to go with whatever my bad choice is. And I have a sign number between 1 and 10 for those, so please, Jonathan a number between 1 and 10 for my bad choices.
2: Let's go with number 4.
1: Oof. Well, you know, that's very close to a number 5 that I have here. And number 5 is perfectly represented for uh, this choice for all 5 of the boroughs of New York. Because we are covering a film starring Adam's least favorite person whatsoever from... It was the alternate choice I had for... The John Travolta episode, I Have Gotti.
2: (laughs) Yes, this is perfect. Oh, fuck.
1: (laughs) I
0: knew it was coming, you sneaky fuck. Uh, You know what, though? Even if I had a veto, I don't think I'd use it, just out of sheer morbid curiosity.
1: And and on the other side of things, over at number 10, um, I had my alternative from the initial Stephen King episode we did, Dreamcatcher which, unfortunately, we can't cover now, but needs to be covered at some point, because Dreamcatcher... Yeah! yeah so Dreamcatcher is... Dreamcatcher is 50% of a good movie. <laughs>
0: like, yeah, at best. There's a lot. There is a lot there.
1: Well, and now, that is the end of this episode, and I guess it's uh, time we all went out on a perfect sea shanty, everybody. Let's go, landlubbers! Who lives in a pineapple under the sea?
2: SpongeBob SquarePants!
1: Oh, just like the old sailors always did. <laughs> you ready? Kids. Kids, don't listen to this show. No, for the love of God, if you're a child, don't listen yeah, to this don't, show. Don't. Do your fucking homework. <laughs> yeah, Stop it. Good lord. <laughs>